Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Kololo Luckett, and I'm a curator and art historian based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I have the great fortune to be in conversation with artist Timothy Washington as part of 154 uh, Contemporary Art Fairs um, educational programming. And Timothy, you are right now located in Lamert Park in, um, in Los Angeles. Los Angeles, California, right up on Martin Luther King Boulevard. And you are right now situated in your studio. Yes. And we will get to some of the wonderful works of art in your studio after we kind of go through some images and then talk a little bit about um, your background. And then you will, you know, talk a little bit about the work that's in your studio, which is a real treat for everybody watching. And then also I wanna just let, let people know as we go along uh, with the programming, feel free to put your comments and questions in the chat section. I'll be looking at that and I will be fielding those questions and comments and asking Tim. Alrighty, oh. so let's get started, Tim. Great. So I'm gonna, Great. I'm gonna share my screen. Right. All right. Can you see that, Tim? <laughs> okay, great. Okay, that's that handsome picture of you. And we will go to the first image. And so, Tim, this image uh, is viewed at Gallery 32 in 1969. Uh, the owner and gallerist, uh, Sus Suzanne Jackson. Mm -hmm. and uh, can you just tell me a little bit about uh, this time period in Los Angeles and this gallery the, and the significance of this gallery and the work that you were displaying and some of the artists um, that were part of this gallery? Um, Suzanne Jackson, Jackson was the owner of that gallery. And um, that was one of my first one-man shows. Uh, all graphic statements on aluminum. And the piece that you see right there is titled Silent Majority. And uh, there's a superimposed image of a chicken, which is basically, they are chicken to speak up for what they believe in. And also, Suzanne uh, was a model in art classes at Otis School where Charles White taught. And that's how she originally met you. Is that correct? Is that, do you remember uh, no. that was like your first, no, that wasn't your first interaction with her? I think I met her at the Brockman Gallery. Ah, okay, yeah, because that was nearby. Yeah, um, we had, uh, art association where all the artists would meet at the Brockman Gallery. I'm not sure if it was once a week or once a month or something like that. Mm -hmm. We all would uh, have a, like an ongoing conversation about art and our, uh, what we plan to do in the future and how we could all work together. Mm -hmm. uh, wow. And so what was it like to have your one, your first solo show at Gallery 32? Do you recall some of, you know, what that was like at such a young you know, age? Uh, I was extremely close to Suzanne, mainly because she had a black Afghan hound, beautiful dog, long black coat, and I had an Afghan hound, which well, Suzanne's dog she named was John. My Afghan I call Gonzo, mm -hmm. uh, Sir Gonzo, which was a, a like a. It had a black face, long blonde hair, which was mistaken for a human being on several occasions, <laughs> and it had a, a black curly tail, a golden brown back a white chest and long black uh, hair on the arms and legs. Um, so you, actually, all, 
So you all bonded over dogs? Yeah, we used to take them out running, chasing rabbits. <laughs> I know you have a strong affinity love for animals. Um, and we can talk about a little bit about that a little bit later, but I'm gonna go to the next image of you. And uh, can you talk a little bit about this image and the actual sculpt sculpture? Okay. Um, this was done while I was in college and we all went out to Terminal Island in San Pedro and we ha you had to cross a drawbridge to get there. And once you were there, there was like a mountain of scrap metal. Um, so right away I started gathering body parts, parts that I would take back to Shinar's and weld together. The shoulders on that particular piece was part of a Volkswagen bumper. Um, the chest cavity was nails. And uh, sorry to say, but I kind of disrupted the class by pounding all those nails in the chest cavity and the base. <laughs> um, and, and I, I guess you can see I was very young when I created that piece. Right, I mean, and it's a very tall piece as well. I tried to make man feel insignificant. Wow. And the title of the piece is Love Thy Neighbor. And it was a dedication to the power structure. All the different continents like Russia, China, Korea, Africa. Wow, and you showed, and this and you showed this work um, in a couple of different art spaces, right? Quite a few, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, were there any, um, what kind of response did you get from, from viewers when this was on display? Very positive. Uh, everyone was impressed. I don't, uh, I don't particularly like it, um, but. It Why not? Like, oh my God, it's such a powerful, it's a very powerful. Very well received. Mm -hmm. Okay. It was in quite a few shows that I do recall mm -hmm. uh, being in one show and they thought it was a controversial piece because they said the figure was nude. Isn't that crazy? It is. I think people tend to have a um, um, awkward response to things that aren't so-called cloaked, you know, clothes. And, uh, yeah, I don't see this. I don't see this sculpture as being naked in any sense. You know, I mean, there are different parts of the body that, you know, you are paying more, you know, attention to, but that doesn't make me feel uncomfortable or anything. It actually makes me want to learn more about the work and how it was made and, you know, what, what inspired you to do that, so. And also when you think about it, all throughout art history, been artists that did nudes and they were accepted. So I couldn't That's understand why this would cause any uh, controversy. Right, right. I think maybe because it might not be more of this European aesthetic it's very much different so people might have a you know feel a different kind of way uh -huh. um, just you know you know just a hunch all right so i'm going to go to the next image and we were just talking about this uh renaissance in black which was um this is a poster for for the doc the tv documentary that was aired at um, knbc4 in 1971 and this is you and artist uh john riddle uh-huh Yes, and can you just share a little bit about this? And um, and also, you recently found you, you you were unable to find the this documentary, and you just recently um, found it at UCLA. But can you talk a little bit about uh, this documentary having two 
artists, two African-American artists featured in this documentary. Okay. Uh, way back then, it had won an Academy Award for a documentary and uh, it was shown twice at prime time. It was uh, featured in Los Angeles Times uh, paper uh, on several occasions. And it was uh, narrated by Oscar Lee Brown Jr. Mm -hmm. Me and John Riddle were close friends at that time too. And so um, what did you, what was the documentary about? Was it about specific works that you made? Um, was it about, you know, um, the relationship of like certain art movement going on during the time period? Um, the title, Renaissance in Black, um, it's like rebirth of Black. And um, I did a series of uh, dry points on aluminum and I actually created a piece specifically for the documentary. And whenever they would pan away going to a commercial, they would show uh, a close-up of the piece that was actually used on uh, several occasions in, in, during the show. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, well, I mean, I look forward to seeing it once you all you know, are able to digitize it, um, it's just really exciting that you were able to um, you know, find, find this documentary. I found it very strange that they were unable to find it at uh, NBC. Uh, you would think that it would be accessible in their archives. Right, right. But UCLA, as you said, um, Aaron said that you were able to, Lizetta, through Lizetta, um, able to track it down. So that's uh -huh. fantastic. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that. All right, I'm gonna to go to the next image. This, this pretty, this unprecedented show that happened. Um, the three graphic artists, 1971, this show of your work and Charles White and David Hammonds, this, uh, this exhibition took place at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Um, and uh, it was uh, created quite a, uh, it was a big deal and created a quite a stir. And Tim, can you just share with us the work that you exhibited and then also, you know, your close friends, Charles mm -hmm. White and David Hammonds. And um, can you just talk a little bit about that? and the significance of, of the show, and that this year is the 50th anniversary of three graphic artists. Um, the pieces that were used in the museum show, uh, some of them were uh, done at, in my one-man exhibit at Gallery 32. And I believe uh, Mr. Joseph Young came to that reception and saw the pieces which were done on aluminum. Each line was scratched into aluminum with an etching needle. And that was when he decided that I would be one of the contributing artists in the show. And you um, were the youngest artist too. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but I truly enjoyed creating for the museum show. I felt very honored and wanted to do my best. Mm -hmm. And so what was it like exhibiting work alongside your close friends? It was beautiful. Uh, I really weren't aware of Charles White that way back then. Uh, I think I saw one calendar with his work on it and I was very much impressed and wanted to meet him. Mm -hmm. uh, it was kind of a different uh, 
meeting at, as far as me and David Hammonds, we were close friends. Mm-hmm. And we kind of hung out together and did different things together. Mm-hmm. And when I met David, that might be one of the other questions later on. Right. Uh, I met David at the Department of Water and Power, mm-hmm. and, which was a relatively new building, huge building. I think it was 15 stories tall. And we would finish our assignment uh, which would only take us maybe three or four hours. We would rush through and finish, and we would meet on a different level or a different floor and draw the rest of the night, mm-hmm. every yeah. night. Yeah, and you showed him some really interesting techniques of art making, too, which we can talk about that in a little bit. Okay. And, and, and that's how he also met Charles White, right, at um, uh, a class that you, you you were taught by Charles White. No, that's not no? true. It's not true? Oh, okay, I stand correct, okay. Uh, he's never been an instructor of mine. Uh, oh, okay. I met Charles White at, I uh, believe it was the Brockman Gallery. He was one of the contributing artists that we showed, we all showed together. Wow. So thank you. Uh, I admired him and his work, but he was never an instructor of mine. Ah, wow. So we'll have to, you know, we'll definitely correct that. So thanks for correcting me. Um, I guess my approach was quite different from most other artists. But uh, for me, I use it as a competitive device. Uh, like anything and everything that I did, I tried to put it in a competitive element. Uh, For an example, like running track, I tried to be the best. And I feel that that gave me an advantage and made me reach and strive for doing better and better work. All right, I'm going to go to the next slide, which is one of your dry point on aluminum. And this is titled Why. And this is one of the works that are is in your show at Dwayne Thomas in New York. Okay, this was an early aluminum piece. And the figure had a crown of thorns and um, superimposed. Well, it looks like a Christ figure and superimposed was uh, a dead pigeon. The peace symbol itself is pretty much a dove, but if you research doves, they are considered in the pigeon family. Uh, In the feathers of the pigeon, I incorporated figures mm-hmm. and it scratched in the chest cavity. Why? So in the wings, I incorporated two long nails, which I crucified the pigeon. So instead of crucifying the Christ figure, I crucified the peace symbol. Wow. That's quite profound. And you have in the wing, one of the wings of the pigeon, there are three figures that you etched in. And where do those figures come from? I believe it was some African book. Okay. Mm -hmm. Wow, this is a beautiful piece. All right, we're going to go to the next image. This is another dry point, but this is on copper from 1974, and it's uh, titled Inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, in most of my work, I would use a cat. And, and quite a few pieces I utilize the image of a cat, mainly because I thought that cats were sneaky, clever, and 
portray the system, the system itself as being sneaky and clever and uh, um, pretty much stood back and watched curiously and doing nothing. It's really interesting that this cat is looking straight out at the viewer, out, out at us and, and kind of engaging us, whereas the um, male figure is in profile looking at the cat. And then you also have kind of at the chest of the cat, it looks as if it could be a moon, the circular object floating uh, right above the word inflation. Yes, but it's like a crying figure, or, or, I mean, like a crying image of a face. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Placing it, emphasis on inflation itself and how inflation affected Black people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Timothy, I just have to um, point out your penmanship is just so beautiful. Uh, it, it's when I saw that up close the first time, and this is a very petite, a very small um, work. And I was just struck by your, your penmanship is so beautiful and so poetic. It flows so beautifully. And it almost looks as if your dry point, it's almost like uh, it's almost like it's airbrushed in a way. It's just flowing on the like on the surface of, of, of the copper. Uh, again, each line scratched into aluminum. Okay. Would allow the direction would be at a forty-five degree angle, and the, the the amount of pressure on the needle will give you the variation in the tonal qualities. It's beautiful. It's, it's a stunning piece. So we're gonna to go to this next image, which is Black Eyed Peas and Cornbread from around 2007. And you know, once again, you use a lot of found objects uh, on the materials in your work and you source them from all different places. And I'm gonna advance to the next image of some details of this piece. Uh, and can you share a little bit um, about this work. Okay. Um, black eyed peas and cornbread. Uh, uh, growing up, uh, that was kind of like a, a black uh, meal. Uh, my mom would fix black eyed peas and cornbread frequently and at different art events. Uh, there was an artist, Dan Conchler, and one of the huge parties that he had, he served black eyed peas and cornbread. Um, the breast in this figure it came from uh, antique, antique bells of a phone. I would always try to redesign the human figure. So the arms are ex uh, extended long. And the little triangular piece is representing the pyramid. And the figures in that pyramid shape is my friend Ian White and David Hammond's wife, Chie. And in the collage areas, um, I used part of a camel cigarette package, which had a camel and in the background, a pyramid. I also took a quotation from the Bible that spoke about Jesus Christ being the most influential figure throughout history. And what else? And, and 
in uh, Tim, the image of Ian and Chia, that's from your travel to Egypt. Right, right. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a beautiful time together there. Um, one, of the, one of the pinpoint um, uh, images that stuck with me was um, riding on camels through the desert to the pyramids itself. And another highlight of it was actually crawling down deep into the pyramid, um, seeing all the images and uh, artwork that was done on the walls of the pyramid. I also was able to pick up rocks and pieces of glass that were close to the pyramid and was able to bring them back to Los Angeles and incorporate them into my sculptures. Mm -hmm. And you, David Hammonds and John Otterbridge, you all rode camels, right? Mm -hmm. And Ian too. And Ian, yes. And Chie too. And Chie, all right, great. All right, so I'm gonna go to this image, God Is, from 1974. Uh, can you talk a little bit about this work? And the carving is just phenomenal. And, you know, where you find your material, can you talk a little bit about that as well? Um, I have found this table. It had three separate panels. And um, even way back then, I thought about uh, since technology was where it was, I often thought that to enhance a piece of art, you would have to not just rely on uh, your drawing ability, but incorporate painting and sculpture and found objects. And the main message is that God is, as opposed to God is not. And uh, I do truly believe that my work is pretty much spiritually motivated and in some cases spiritually executed. And also in that piece, uh, which might uh, extend to the Watts riot, because on the left-hand side, uh, I found this piece of burnt wood that, were, that came from the riot itself, and I kind of inlaid that actual piece within the in one of the panels. And uh, when I say um, fusing other areas of art, uh, I painted the bird of prey in the head part of the um, sculpture. And I would always use that circular eyes um, for several reasons. One reason is a way of saying more by saying less. The second reason was when you see that circular eye, it leaves an imprint on the brain. Mm. Whether you wanna acknowledge it or not, once you see it and look away, that image stays in your mind. Mm -hmm. And Tim, what about the arm and hand that you carved and this figure that it's holding? Uh, well, again, um, I kind of enjoy creating stuff from wood, which I later uh, dismissed mainly because of the sanding dust, which was uh, 
very irritating. Uh, so I only did a few wood carvings. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually carved the hand from a separate piece of wood and laminated it all together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, I mean, this is such a powerful piece on so many levels. Um, thank you. So I'm going to go to this next image is um, a shot of the gallery. It's a gallery view of three of your pieces. Um, whoops, I skipped one. Sorry. This one, Induction and Suspicion, which is the title of your show that's at Dwayne Thomas. Um, let's uh, talk a little bit about this piece from 1973. Okay. I titled it Induction and Suspicion. Induction in regards to indoctrinated into a formulated way of governing uh, a figure or a human. Uh, The hands are directly inside. Uh, When you think about uh, suspicion, uh, back then the police would actually arrest you on suspicion whether you did the crime or not. tried to incorporate all the stereotype superimposed elements about black people. Again, the circular eyes uh, leaving an imprint on the brain. And in this figure, it had no mouth. So as black people, we were unable to speak. Uh, The tennis shoe on the foot places emphasis on the athletic ability of black people and the association of basketball. Um, Again, stereotype superimposed elements. The long penis that hangs down below the knees was another stereotype um, part of um, the fear that they had about black people. And and unfortunately, this these stereotypes are still being played out today. And, and this work is very much, and your work in general is very much, very relevant today. Sadly, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, I mean, you, you have your hand, the, you know, this figure has their hands down by their side. And then I think about, you know, hands up, don't shoot. You know, wherever you place your hands up in the air or down by your, 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 your side, you're still very vulnerable as a, a black man, a black person in general, uh, when stopped by the police. I kind of hate to uh, talk too much about the negative part of uh, how black people were treated back in them days. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was having a show at the Ancrum Gallery in La Cienega by Beverly Hills. And just the fact of me being in front of the gallery, um, the police pulled up and held a gun to my head, wondering why and what was I doing in that neighborhood? So right away I had to explain that my work was being featured in the gallery. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that story, Tim, and this work. Um, and then I'm going to go to this last one, which is uh, a view of these three works that we got to talk about, that you got to share about the making of it. Uh, so thank you. So I'm gonna stop sharing my screen and we're going to, let's see here, stop sharing, here we go, on a larger format here. So Tim, um, I have a couple questions for you. 
Um, I just want to, can you just share about like um, where you are currently based? You, you already said you're in Limerick Park, Limerick in Los Angeles, but you know, can you share with us about your upbringing and where you were, where, where you're from? Okay, my parents are from Mississippi. Yes, I'm from Mississippi. <laughs> my uh, oldest brother was born in Mississippi. I myself was born in Watts. And we lived in a, a little bitty small house in Watts, which was on a large, I don't know how many acres of land. There's a lot of land surrounding the little house. Uh, my father at that time, uh, they were building the Santa Monica Freeway. And we had a house transported from uh, West Los Angeles all the way to Watts. And it was like a two-story house, one of the largest houses in Watts. My grandfather was a carpenter, and my grandfather, uh, from what I understand, built most of the homes in Mississippi, and he didn't charge the people anything. So that kind of tells you about his character. He was a beautiful person and cared, well, like a humanitarian and was one of the first forms of inspiration for me as I watched him build things with his hands. And also uh, about Mississippi, my grandmother would make these beautiful quilts. And they weren't just quilts because uh, they were more like reliefs because she was stuff fabric and cotton into some of the shapes of animals and uh, gave, it almost had a three-dimensional appearance. And being young and being exposed to the quality quilts that she made uh, was another form of inspiration for me. Um, my grandmother, uh, from both sides. My mom's mother was also uh, made quilts and also made pretty much all of our clothes. She would, she would sew and make these beautiful innovative shirts, beautiful work. So I was impressed by the stuff that she made as well as my other grandmother on my father's side. Mm -hmm. And, and, and uh, Tim, so uh, I, I have just a kind of like a simple question about, you know, you being an artist. When, when did you know you wanted to be an artist? And, and how long have you been making art? <laughs> I've been making art pretty much all of my life. And uh, knowing that I was going to be an artist I felt that way at a very early age. I think I was about five years old when I decided, and my mom also uh, making the decision for me to be an artist because that was one of my strong points. And my, at that time, my mom was a very influential figure in my life. and. She raised three hard-head boys by herself. And um, my oldest brother, she decided that he was going to be an engineer. So um, him being a mother's boy did exactly what mom said, and he became a, a engineer he was very smart my two brothers were very uh, very smart uh, my strong point was art and as my brothers sat at the uh, kitchen table they were talking about 
solving equations in math while I would draw on the table, the kitchen or, or dining table, which I got into trouble several times for drawing on the table. Wow, so you knew at such a, a young age that you wanted to be an artist. Uh, for several reasons, one contributing element was uh, we had moved from Watts to the west side, uh, to probably the age of five, and uh, I was exposed to an artist that lived two doors down. He had a son. They were white, and me and my younger brother and his son was named Peter Myers. We would all play together, but most of the time we would go upstairs to his place. And since his father was a professional artist, he gave us materials and art supplies to create with way back then. Um, his son and my younger brother would get tired of doing artwork and wanted to go outside and play. Whereas me, I would stay in with him and create all day, pretty much every day. So um, he would all, he also, went to Colima, Mexico, and dug up all these beautiful figurines and things uh, that he would actually sell to different museums. So I was uh, exposed to quality art at a very young age. So way back then, I thought, or since I enjoyed art so much that I would be an artist, and going back to uh, elementary school, I think we were discussing Brazil and the coffee plantations. And the class was uh, uh, allowed to do a mural in the classroom wall and uh, nutrition came, up, came around and all the other kids wanted to go outside and play Again, for me, the joy was to stay inside and work on the mural. Mm -hmm. And so by the time the kids came back from nutrition, they were all um, elated and uh, was, uh, I was given quite a, quite a bit of compliments for the work that I had done on that mural. Going back to junior high school, one of the very first complimentary notices that I received was from an art teacher. Her name was Miss Oglo, and she wrote a complimentary notice that I was supposed to take home to my parents, to uh, which stated that. Uh, she sincerely hoped that I would remain and follow my art career because of my, as she says, my artistic ability. And so that was another one. Now going to high school, I had um, a beautiful art teacher named Miss Margaret Works. And uh, at that time in high school, um, most kids were sent to the counselor's office to help um, decide on the future of the students. Um, the counselor told me at Dorsey High School that I should go to a trade tech or to a trade school as opposed to thinking that I could possibly win a scholarship to an art institute. But when I came back and told my art teacher that what my counselor had told me, 
she was very much upset behind that and gave me the key to the stock room, which I was exposed to all the different materials uh, that I could use and take home from school. And uh, I believe I was the only one at Dorsey that had life drawing seven and eight as opposed to most people having life drawing one and two. Uh, my art teacher was very instrumental in helping me uh, prepare my portfolio, which was submitted to Chenard's California Institute of the Arts. Um, my first uh, scholarship was to the Saturday morning classes at Chenard's. My second scholarship was a four-year scholarship to Chenard's. And uh, I was so fortunate because uh, the tuition at Chenard's was very high. There's no way I could have afforded to have gone there. And again, at that early age, I felt so young and all the other adult students at Chenard's uh, was where I learned my bad habit of smoking cigarettes, trying to make me look older. <laughs> <laughs> but Chenard's itself was a very beautiful school because everyone was uh, concerned mm -hmm. and we learned from each other. Yeah, uh, I mean, could you, could you share some of the artists that uh, you went to school with? There, there are some great artists that went went there. Uh, well, my friend, my close friend, David Hammonds, once we, uh, after we had met, working at the Department of Water and Power, uh, I think I might have already mentioned the fact that we would draw uh, yeah. after com completing our work assignment we would draw the rest of the night. And uh, my friend David wanted to know what art school I went to and how to get there. Mm -hmm. um, me and David would hang out and um, he sat in on several, well, a lot of the classes at Chenard's and from the Department of Water and Power. Uh, sometimes I would drive to work uh, and sometimes David would drive. And at that time, I believe David had a, uh, it must have been a, a 41 or 31 Plymouth. It was big, well, to me it was a big ugly car that was uh, instead of a, a color, it was was a, a primer gray, and he had cut a huge stencil of a star that he sprayed gold a gold star on both sides of the doors of this car. The thing that was uh, kind of ironic and dangerous was at that time. Uh, David's car had no brakes. Oh we would still attempt to drive to and from work. And uh, what was so bizarre, he would uh, actually pump the brakes, with, uh, which would make the car slow down a little bit. But the way in which he stopped the car was he would drive perpendicular to the curb of the sidewalk and turn the tires toward the curb and we bang into the curb several times in order to make the car slow down and stop. Wow, so, so you all were collaborating and doing performance art too. <laughs> <laughs> There's a performative aspect to you all driving to and from work. 
With no brakes. <laughs> With no brakes. I'm just visualizing that, Tim. Oh my gosh. Tim, I have one more question before I ask you what's going on in your um, studio and the and the works that are behind you. Um, you coming of age in the 60s and 70s, um, what was LA like? And, and what was it like being active in the Black Arts Movement during that time period? And also, you know, you know, you know, the Watts uprising as well. Can you share a little bit about that before we talk about this phenomenal work that's behind you? Um, for me, even way back then, I thought about technology and I thought about art mm. and I thought that since technology was where it was, as an artist, you would have, for me, I would have to incorporate much more than just a drawing or just a painting or just a sculpture. I would try to fuse together all areas of art, giving it more impact. And since at that time, and also at this time today, I feel that everything is alive to a certain degree. So if you incorporate different materials, which has a life of its own into one piece, it would give it more impact and make it much more interesting visually as well as um, um, uh, objects. Um, let me give you an example. Uh, there was a place called Scavenger's Paradise. And uh, and where was that? That was in Burbank. Okay. Uh, since I felt that objects would call me to different areas of the city. And that is a practice that I even do today. And several people didn't believe that objects would talk to me and call me. So I, I had to prove it on several occasions. But going back to Scavenger's Paradise, uh, when I walked in, there was some wheels that were attached close to the ceiling of this, it was kind of like an antique shop, but it was more like a wrecking company, mm -hmm. which had columns and everything conceivable. And when I walked in, these wheels started to vibrate and they fell from the wall into this barrel. So at that time, I jumped back, being shocked by the movement of this object. And right away, I said to myself, I've got to have those wheels. And uh, I, I did uh, incorporate those wheels in a tall female sculpture that was carved out of wood and that opened up. And uh, I incorporated a baby's face on the inside of this female figure. And those same wheels were utilized instead of arms as wings. Mm. And, and what's uh, that piece called? Um, it's called The Energy Source First Warning. Mm -hmm. Uh, when I say the energy source, of course, the energy source would be the creator, mm -hmm. God, mm -hmm. uh, which controls all and which I always try to give credit to the creator. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Tim, we should um, talk a little bit about what's going on in your studio and what you're currently working on and what's there. Uh, can you um, tell us a little bit about this um, beautiful sculpture 
that I hear it's a musical instrument. Okay, um, just a few pieces here mm -hmm. that I'd like to acknowledge. One is the, the, the painting, which has a lot of texture to it, and it's a figure with her hands up holding towards her hair. Mm -hmm. uh, the title of that is called Red Eyes. Red Eyes. Uh, another painting that I will briefly talk about mm -hmm. is a female figure holding a pigeon. Okay. Oh, Again. Aaron's going to get it. Aaron's going to show it for us. Thank you, Aaron. The, the, the peace symbol. Mm. And uh, can you see that? I can, we can, yes, yes. So the figure's holding a pigeon. Yeah. Again, uh, place an emphasis on man's attempt to identify with nature. Uh, I thought that this particular piece was the most uh, innovative in terms of a frame because uh, I've never ever seen anything with a frame consisting of objects inlaid in the top part. And, and, uh, and Tim, what kind, what kind of objects are inlaid at the top? Uh, on the left hand side there's a, a wooden part of a column mm. and on the side of it is a mirror mm. and Next to that were two bottles, small oval-shaped bottles with green liquid. Mm -hmm. So I tried to incorporate liquid into a painting. Next to that were some inlaid pieces of glass. And then next to that is a cross, mm -hmm. which portraying religion has gone to her head. Mm -hmm. Next to that is another piece of inlaid plexiglass. And next to that is a curved piece of glass with the image of the Queen of Spades. So the image in the painting, she's a Queen of Spades. Oh. Uh, next to that, is also another curved piece of plexiglass, which has uh, kind of like a smoke plexiglass, which were transparent, which you can see through. And next to that is some other inlaid pieces of, of glass, uh, one with images of flowers. And when you look through the other pieces of glass, you can see through it and see other shapes behind the glass. And at the end is a, a flower piece of glass. And the figure, going back to the figure, uh, they still do that today. Uh, they would cut images in the side of the hair of Kind of like a design. Yes, yeah, yeah yep. My, I mean, I, I know, I, I'm very familiar with that. I mean, I have six brothers and also, <laughs> 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 yeah, even women too. So, yeah, yes. And, and then again, I used to try to redesign the human figure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, talking a little bit about the sculpture, which is a futuristic animal uh, inspired by the jag, the jaguar XKE 2 plus 2, which even today is my favorite car. I thought it was the most beautiful car on the planet. Mm -hmm. And the front end of the uh, had a long extended 
front end. Mm. So the sculpture, um, I poured resin to extend the snout on the futuristic animal. Uh, going back to, I don't know how much time we have, but yeah, Tom, we have a few. We have a few more minutes, and we can close out on this on this piece. Talking a little bit about the sculpture again. Uh, I don't know where I acquired the skull of a hog, which is very uh, ugly and eerie to look at. So for about two years, I had the actual skull, and I put it in a cabinet because I couldn't stand to look at it. Mm -hmm. But then at the beach, I found this piece of driftwood that was kind of like an S shape. So it had a ball root on it, which I dug out, and it kind of resembled the heel of a shoe. So I placed the skull of the hog in the back part of the shape of a shoe heel. And to make it uh, relate to the Jaguar XKE, I poured resin to extend the front end. Mm -hmm. I was also inspired by a peacock. That's why you have all the elements hanging down from uh, the skull of the futuristic animal. The animal has more than several eyes on both sides of the head and eyes uh, throughout the sculpture. Uh, not only is it, uh, what well, also has rabbit ear antennas, mm -hmm. which uh, can be let out to extend it, to make it much higher than it actually is, mm -hmm. which is also higher than a horse as we see it now. It has four legs with, uh, claws at the bottom, mm. kind of like dinosaur claws, with a little fur extended from that as I thought about the Clydesdale horse. Uh, and it the has noise making element about the piece is that not only is it a sculpture, but uh, not necessarily a musical instrument, but a bunch of noise making elements accessible. And I can hear a faint like bell. <laughs> and Tim, so you fabricated, you created all of these, you put all these components together. Pardon me? I said you, you put all these components together to make the sounds. Thanks, Tim, for showing us. Thank you. Thank you. I said thank you for showing us. Well, there's more sounds than that. It can be played from both sides. Wow. Well, well, Tim. Okay, I'll let you. You can you can show us. You can play it from the other side. We just have a couple more minutes. Is this the only sculpture that um, you created sound for? Pardon me? Is this the only sculpture that you created sound for? No. 
Okay, um, other ones. The piece that, and I believe is in New York now, mm -hmm. uh, um, titled The Energy Source Second Warning. Mm -hmm. And that particular piece uh, has a knob midway which you turn and you turn the knob, there are bells, chimes, rattlers, noise-making elements. Mm -hmm. And there was a bell embedded in the skull of this female figure. Mm -hmm. And on a cable line, once the tension builds up in the cable line, it causes the bell to revolve and give the illusion of the eyes revolving in the head. Wow. wow. Well, Tim, this, is, this has been great to speak with you and learn more about your work, your process, and your time, and your upbringing in LA. But I also wanted to just um, say that the significance of the three graphic artists from 1971 uh, this is the 50th anniversary and that there will be some programming, right? At yeah. uh, LACMA um, later in the year mm -hmm. to commemorate the, the 50th anniversary of that show. And mm -hmm. so we should stay tuned for more information about that, right? Great. <laughs> yes. Yes. It has been a joy speaking with you, Tim. And Aaron, thank you so much and to your daughter for helping us set everything up. And um, are there any parting words you'd like to share with us, Tim? Well, yes, I want to acknowledge to you and to everyone else um, how much I appreciate you as well as how much I appreciate Erin. Uh, she's a wonderful person and uh, so smart and it's been a great asset to me and my art. Um, I sincerely appreciate you, the gallery owner in New York, Regis. Uh, I like to give uh, credit and thanks to you and everyone else that helped participate in that show and who has helped my career tremendously. I appreciate you and uh, actually I love you so much. I have enjoyed talking to you. Um, thank you. Thank you so much, Tim. And thank you, Olivia, for um, working behind the scenes to make this uh, program possible. And so we're gonna sign off for now. All right, everyone take care. And I'll oh, be visiting you uh, in LA soon, Tim. Wait, right. wait, before we go. Okay. One of the most important things to me is this gives me a chance to acknowledge and give credit to the creator. Great. Well, thank you. Thank okay. you for sharing those last remarks, Tim. All right. So I'll be talking to you soon and I'll see you when I come out to visit you. Okay, later. great. <laughs> okay. I'll be in touch. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Goodbye for now.